When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we look ahead to one of the most major milestones of our lives when we graduate into retirement. Now, here's our valedictorian and certified financial planner practitioner, Eric Brotman, your host of Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. Get ready for inspiration and actionable advice to guide you towards a seamless transition into a dignified retirement where you get to make your dreams a reality. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the show that reframes retirement as a graduation. I'm Eric Brotman, your host, and I am very excited to introduce our audience to Jill Snyder, uh, an estate planning attorney from Maryland. And Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So um, I, I, I prepped Jill a little bit for this show based on the episodes that we've done thus far this season. And one of the things I said is that um, we want to talk about estate planning today, but we want to talk about it in a way that, that helps reframe it a little bit. Because estate planning is not only for the rich. There's this idea that estate planning is, uh, is somehow for really wealthy people. And Hollywood has made the will reading an event. Um, can you speak for, for a moment or two about um, why estate planning matters for everyone and not just for people who are ultra wealthy? Sure, I'd be happy to. So the main reason why I say it's for everyone is because people don't realize how much it touches their lives until it's too late. So if you don't prepare in advance, doesn't matter, the, the issues aren't money related, but I get calls regularly um, about my mother had a stroke and is incapacitated and I was told I need a power of attorney and by that time it's too late. So um, that's one of the reasons to make sure that while people are alive, they can make sure that they have people designated to take care of them if they're not able to do so. Another reason is uh, if you don't have a will, the state makes one for you. So you have one anyway. It's just one that you choose or whether the government chooses what it is. Got it. And, and I suspect the government's plan wouldn't be anyone's first choice? Usually not. Um, people are always surprised to find out that spouses only are entitled to a portion of the estate and children or parents are also entitled to a portion. Okay. Now, when, when folks think about estate planning, not only do they conjure up ultra-wealthy, they often also conjure up ultra-elderly. Um, there's this idea that, uh, you know, when you're 87 years old, it's time to start thinking about this. And we've been trying to, to get our clients to start thinking about this when their children are as, as young as 18, and suddenly parental rights aren't necessarily uh, available anymore. Do you think starting early makes sense? I actually began my entire practice when I had young children focusing on families with young children who needed to create an estate plan because of the guardianship issue. Um, leaving a note on the refrigerator the night before you go away to say, if something happens, call this person, isn't a sufficient estate plan. The only way you can designate a guardian for minor children is to put it into your will. Okay, and, 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 and help us out. There, there's a guardian under the will, but there's also a trustee. What's the difference, and, and, and do they have to be the same person? 
No, they absolutely don't have to be the same person. If you're lucky enough that the same person happens to be good at both things, one of which is loving and caring for your children, and the other one is being able to manage the assets on behalf of your children, that's great. But for a lot of people, you have to have two different people for those roles. And it actually serves as a nice check and balance. Do you, do you in your work with families, do you ever hear folks who say, you know what, I've worked really, really hard to build all this money and I'm going to spend it and I don't want to leave anything to my kids. I helped them get through school and to heck with them, I'm spending my money. Yes, if people could actually run out of money the day they die, that would be their perfect plan. Unfortunately, we can't all know when that's happening. So you need to plan um, to be sure. But that's, that's a common refrain that, you know, they think that their money is for them and it should be while they're still living. But other people really do want to leave a legacy, whether it's a charitable legacy, a legacy for their children or their grandchildren that focuses on education. There are all kinds of values that can be presented as part of an estate plan. Okay. And you mentioned you started your practice working with, with folks with young children and that that, uh, that was you as well at the time. Tell us a little bit about how you how you got started in this business. You went to Duke Law, is that correct? No, I went to Duke for undergraduate. Duke I undergrad. went to Georgetown Law. Georgetown Law. Okay. So we, we've got a, a very pedigreed mm-hmm. attorney here uh, with you. Duke and Georgetown, although we're in College Park. So uh, we're in Maryland country, not Duke country, but that's okay. Um, so Georgetown Law. And when you came out of law school, did you know you wanted estates and trusts? Is that why you went to law school? No, you don't wake up, you know, every morning thinking, boy, I want to talk about death and incapacity every day. (laughs) But um, I actually... You don't? No, I mean, most people don't. I thought thought that's how how you wound up in this business. So, no, I actually started off in enforcement at the Securities and Exchange Commission. I like to investigate and prosecute um, financial criminals. Um, but once I had my own children, I really needed a, a plan B because it revolved, uh, required a lot of travel all over the country. And I had a, an experience in my family where my father died young. My brother and I were both young attorneys. My father was an attorney. And it was still a mess because none of us wanted to ask the questions. No one wanted to you know, make my father, who had lung cancer, think that he may not survive. So we were waiting we basically waited until he was you know, in hospice on a morphine drip to start asking the questions when already his ability to answer them fully was compromised. And you were a young woman at the time? How old were you? 26. 20, okay, so 26 is young to be dealing with that kind of, uh, that kind of a traumatic issue for sure. Um, so you, you went into estates and trusts, and tell me how your practice started and, and, and how it's developed over the years and how it's changed over the years. Okay, I guess I started uh, as soon as my youngest went to preschool. I figured I wouldn't have a whole lot of time and I wouldn't have a whole lot of clients, but I could at least get started and do all the continuing education that I wanted to do to feel absolutely comfortable in a different area of law than I began. And uh, over the years, as my my kids went to school more, my business was built up, and it's a full and very busy practice. Now, you in your practice work with lots of other types of professionals, uh, accountants, financial advisors, real estate folks, insurance people, trust companies, banks, all those kinds of folks. Um, for the, the sake of our audience, how do you, how do you help determine who, who handles which roles when there's lots of professionals involved and, uh, and, and where families are saying, look, we need help, but who does what? That's a good question. So I think that uh, it's helpful to get your team together, or if you don't have a team, help build a team, because people really should have their own separate roles. I have no business giving financial advice. The you know, tax um, accountants shouldn't necessarily be giving legal advice. And, and so 
when everybody is on the same page, we can make sure that the plan we develop is also a well-coordinated plan. Because if I develop an estate plan for somebody, I may have excellent documents that I've drafted, but without assets that actually get directed into the plan, the whole plan was for naught. We see on a regular basis, we see folks who who come to our office thinking they've got all their T's crossed and their I's dotted, and maybe they have a simple will. Um, but they also have no beneficiary designations on half of their accounts, whether it's their 401k or a life insurance policy or group benefits or other things. Um, can you talk a little bit about how beneficiary designations um, can uh, essentially override whatever's in the will and, and the difference between the two so that people understand? Yes, people have a lot of trouble understanding that the will only covers those assets that don't already have a joint owner or a beneficiary designated or are titled into a trust. So for everything um, that is just in your name without a joint owner or beneficiary, that goes through your will. I often have situations where people say, I've put my daughter on all of my accounts, or I've put, and then they um, want an estate plan where they're giving a bunch of specific bequests to other people. And I said, you realize you have no money to fund these bequests? And they look at me like I have two heads. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so okay. you have to make sure that the way your assets are titled and the way that your um, plans are, are actually consistent with one another. But uh, the things that I notice that are really problematic when it comes to beneficiary designations is, number one, they may be so old that you think that who you've named isn't who you've named, and you know, you'll be surprised to find out that your ex-spouse that you haven't been with for 20 years is still gonna get your money she'll if you be, die. She'll be delighted. Yes, but your current wife won't be quite so thrilled. Fair. Um, anyway, that's one issue. The other issue is if your beneficiaries that you name are minors or have um, any kind of disability, you could actually be causing trouble. If you designate something to a person with disabilities who's receiving need-based government benefits, you could actually disqualify them from getting their medical care and other things that they need by directly giving them money. So you have to plan properly. So there's a lot of ways to mess this up, and, and um, there's a whole community of folks who are do-it-yourselfers. Um, where it, the same folks who change their own tire also mm. want to manage their own money and write their own wills and do their own tax returns and so forth. What do you say to the, the do-it-yourselfers, um, either as a word of encouragement or, or potentially as uh, words of warning yes. regarding how this works? I guess in terms of the encouragement part, I'd say doing something is better than doing nothing. At least you're facing it and thinking about these issues. But the other side of it, and I see it often on the state side after a person has passed, but people's mistakes can be really costly. You might be saving a few bucks up front, but costing yourself a lot of bucks at the tail end. So you know, it's better to, to be proactive, and, and it's always easier to plan first than clean up later. I'm, I have a, a question for you. Have you ever seen the Adam Sandler movie, Billy Madison? No. Okay. <laughs> Billy Madison is a ridiculous movie about, um, uh, essentially about a trust baby who never launches because he doesn't have to, um, never gets an education, never does anything. And of course, it's Adam Sandler, so it's irreverent. Um, I have used that reference in speaking to clients who are concerned about leaving enormous amounts of money to their children but don't want to spend a little bit of money to do an estate plan or trust planning or other things, maybe to limit that access. Um, what are your feelings on um, sort of dropping what could be a huge amount of money on young people who may not be ready for it? What are the things that can go wrong there um, beyond the, the, the ones that might be parodied in a movie? 
Well, I have encouraged people to try to give money out to children over time. Of course, they know their children better than I do, and each situation speaks for itself. But it seems these days that 30 is the new 20. Kids are maybe back in your house. They're not financially independent. How are they going to handle this new influx of money if they get it all at once? And so with a trust, you have the opportunity to give money over time so you don't have to worry that if they make a mistake, it's all gone. Maybe if they make a mistake and lose some, they'll realize it before they lose all of it. So I encourage people to continue to hold money in trust usually until at least age 30 and then to gradually dole it out because they can get it for the things that they need beforehand. But kids in their 20s may have college debt, may have um, other credit card debts, may have a starter marriage that doesn't work out. And everything that's in their individual name is is vulnerable, but anything that's in trust is safe. Okay, so um, so mom and dad are, are doing their planning and they have kids and they wanna leave money to their kids. Um, and future grandchildren, because we all know that our kids are rotten and our grandchildren are wonderful. You hear that from anyone who asks. Um, but we also want to protect assets from maybe a, a spouse of one of our kids or a former spouse of, of one of our kids and those kinds of things. Do trusts help um, ensure that your assets only wind up in your, uh, in your line, if you will? Um, can that help? It can help if the person, if your if your child dies and there's a trust that says if the spouse dies and it goes to their descendants, then it's absolutely protected. Anything that comes out of the trust and is direct, directly distributed to your child is then fair game. In Maryland, and I think some other states as well, if you keep your inherited assets individually titled and separate from your spouse, they're not subject to claims in a divorce. Doesn't mean that there won't be a fight over them, but they're not supposed to be subject to claims in a divorce. But anything that you've commingled, if you used inherited money to buy a house that you own together, it's fair game, and it's and it's no guarantee that it's going to stay in your line after that. We have counseled lots of clients when one spouse inherits money from a parent, a grandparent, or someone else, um, not to make them joint. And sometimes we get resistance as if somehow that's um, not forthright or trustworthy or, um, uh, or that it just doesn't seem comfortable to both spouses. And a lot of times we have spouses who say, no, no, what's mine is his and what's his is mine and so forth and so on. Um, how do you communicate to folks who might be interested in, in just slapping everything in a joint account? How do you convince them that that may not be the best, best interest without creating marital uh, challenges? Or can you? Uh, no, touching on the uncomfortable topics is part of the process to make sure that everybody's doing what he or she is doing. From a legal standpoint, if I think that the spouse's interests are so different from one another that I can't represent them both in doing a joint estate plan, I won't. Um, and we'll advise them to seek separate counsel. But that's few and far between. Uh, the issue comes up the most, I think, when you're dealing with second marriages, when each one has different children. I think people feel less vulnerable. If they have the same children, they you know, may feel confident, rightly or wrongly, that the money will end up getting to their children eventually. Um, but plenty want to protect, and they'll say right in a meeting, you know, I want to make sure if you marry somebody else or if they have kids that, that this money will always go to my children. So even if they do put some of the money jointly together, maybe we can carve out a portion that you're guaranteed will get to the next generation. Got it. And uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you're counseling these folks, um, are there times where you'll get enough resistance where someone says, I'm just not willing to do it that way, I wanna do it a different way? Do you, um, 
acquiesce is the wrong word. Um, how do you how do you balance between doing what the client wants you to do and doing what perhaps you know to be in their best interest? Is what do we what happens in that situation? Well, at the end of the day, it's always the client's plan and not mine. All I can do is lay out the pros and cons, and at the end of the day, they need to choose what's best for them. And all I can do is counsel. And I definitely have situations where, where things don't go in the most tax-efficient way or things like that, but that might, that might not be what their value is and where their concerns lie. So the focus is not what I think is the best, but what's most suitable for the client. And if I can persuade them to do what's most suitable, that's great. Some people say, that's complex, I don't want it, I want simple. Something like that, maybe I can convince them, well, in that case, you know, maybe get a life insurance policy where you designate the children. So nothing changes in your day-to-day life, but you still know that there will always be something for your children at the end. Okay, let's let's talk about a, a, a political hot potato without getting political, and that is estate taxes. Um, every state has their own estate or inheritance tax system, and some states have none at all. Uh, and then, of course, the federal government has a plan, which it changes. I, it feels like every every Congress changes this up and down. Um, can you share a little bit about what the rules are now? And I guess more importantly, how much faith can we put in any of these rules that they're even going to be on the books in three years? That's a good question. So for the last several years that I've been doing this, the Maryland estate tax and the federal estate tax have been different every single year. So as planners, we've learned to build a lot of flexibility into our plan because we can't expect that our clients are going to change their documents every time the rules change. The current federal regime is that you can have $11.4 million per person before any federal estate taxes do. So I tell people that they come into my office worried about taxes and they come out wishing that they had a tax problem. So <laughs> yeah, that's actually the good news these days yeah. is the tax. Very few people are facing it and there's a lot that can be done from a planning perspective if you're fortunate enough to be in that situation. But most of my clients are not taxable. Again, my, what I do isn't for the very rich, it's for the everyday. Um, but the Maryland is the one of the only states that has two taxes, both an estate tax and an inheritance tax. One is based on how much you're worth, and the other one is based on who you're giving the money to. So other than counseling my clients to move to Delaware or Florida or somewhere else, we have to work with a lot of flexibility on the tax planning. What I've actually found more recently is that there's more work that I'm doing to undo some complicated tax plans than having to create them these days. If people have old uh, trusts or old plans, the strategy may have been keep your money in separate but equal, husband and wife, um, and to force the most money that you can into this tax-saving trust um, and not give it directly to the beneficiary, meaning to the spouse. Nowadays, if you don't have a tax problem, why would you want to have to be in that trust? Why would you want to have to go through probate because your assets are individually titled? A lot of what I do these days is actually simplify the plans. Okay, so simple simple sounds good. They used to call it the KISS principle, right? Is that the keep it simple? Well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, let's talk about the gifts that, that people can leave their kids and, and some of the multi-generational planning that can happen because um, our audience is broad. We have millennials, we have Xers, we have boomers, uh, and we have folks on either end of that spectrum. And um, I have often thought that the greatest gift you can leave your kids, I mean, beyond... Um, values and and uh, and loving them and taking care of them in that way is the gift of influence and what I mean by that is um, the idea that instead of leaving a kid uh, enough money maybe to ruin him or her um, you can leave money doing some charitable planning to engage 
um, your grown children or grandchildren in ways to um, to empower them, to engage them, and to create influence for them so that they're doing a lot of good with some of the money you leave behind. So can you talk a little bit about, I guess, charitable uh, planning, but without getting super technical, how do you see that bring families together? Have you had some experiences where that happens? Yes, I've seen it often, and I actually do it in my own family. Um, I've transitioned, as I said, I began my practice with young children, now I have young adult children. So things have changed, and when they were younger, we would do a lot of hands-on charitable giving and and activities. As they've gotten older, we've um, created a donor-advised fund, which I call a poor man's foundation, um, (laughs) where you can put some money aside, you get the full tax deduction in the year that you put the money in, but then you can dole it out over time um, to the charities that matter most to you. And what I've done is to bring my family into it. We talk about um, together as a family where we're going to allocate our gifts. So you know, we talked about what matters to each child, and if that child, you know, is focused on one area, we'll figure out a place where we can direct some money there. So it, it's a, a good tax-efficient way to handle things, you know, now, and it's also a way to get our family involved in multi-generational charitable giving. And I see that, and I encourage a lot of other clients to do that, too, because they do want to leave a legacy of values, not just a legacy of money. Sure. Um, So that brings up a ton of follow-up questions. First, um, use the term donor-advised fund. I'm not sure everyone knows what that is, or uh, you explained a little how it works, but how much money do you need to set something like that up in order to to move the needle, if you will? Uh, And what is an appropriate age to start talking to your kids about, about charitable giving? Okay, I started talking to my kids about charitable giving maybe by kindergarten. So it actually was before that. I, I started a program for um, volunteering with families of very young children because selfishly, I didn't want to pay a babysitter while I was going to do something good. So I wanted them to be part of it with me and hope that the values you know, are passed along during the process. So I think it's never too early to start. Obviously, the depth of their role changes. But a donor-advised fund is, um, it can be set up through a charity that already has donor-advised funds in-house, or there are several financial um, institutions that offer donor-advised funds, uh, some with as little as 5000 or $10,000, maybe some even have no minimums. Um, but you know, definitely in the five to $10,000 range is enough. And then instead of having to make all different kinds of charitable bequests to you know your school, your your religious affiliation to things that matter to you. You can do everything that are called grants, where you put all the money money in at once, you get the tax deduction. And and what I've done primarily is put appreciated stocks into them because they don't pay any capital gains, the charity. Um, And it's money that I can't feel that I can liquidate without having to pay a lot of taxes. So I transfer it over to there. And then at that point, um, we make grants. We do it a few times a year where we see what the needs are, and, and we can say, from our, our pot of charitable money, these are the people that we want to send it to for now. And the organization holding the money sends out the grants, sends the letters, and it's very simple. Okay. Um, I have a young daughter, and uh, for the first time this year, she requested allowance. And I told her we could work out allowance with, with a couple of caveats. One, it, it had to involve some type of meaningful chore around the house. We've assigned some responsibilities that are age appropriate, and she loves them, actually. Um, and secondly, I said, we're going to have three jars. Three jars in the house that she labeled. One says fun, one says long-term, and one says charity. 
And every single week when she gets her allowance, and naturally it's not a lot of money, but when she gets her allowance, um, she's responsible for putting at least 20% in charity and at least 20% in long-term. The other 60%, she can do anything she wants with. And it's amazing to me the conversations we've had where she's not trying necessarily to maximize the fun jar. Where there are times like she says, you know, I, I don't really need anything for fun right now. And she'll put the whole thing in charity or in long term um, in a specific week. And I'm just beaming because, you know, not only as a, a financial advisor, but as a dad, I feel like I've conquered the world at that moment. Um, so you're engaging your kids and your whole family in, in these conversations. Have you had... Um, have you had any conflict around that? Have there been any debates that maybe were uncomfortable where one of your kids said, gosh, I, I really don't think we should support uh, my brother or sister's uh, chosen charity? Have you run into any of that? No, we haven't run into that at this point. It's a matter of, I have three sons, so it's a matter of keeping everybody focused and on task while we're having the conversations. That's the most challenging. So you're saying we don't multitask <laughs> or focus? So No, it's not exactly what I'm saying. But, oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, but no, I think because everyone has an opportunity to say what matters to him, it's okay. Um, you don't have to necessarily reach one conclusion. Okay, I like that. So on our show, we do a couple of things every, every two weeks when we go live. One of them is um, to try and talk about um, retirement as, a, um, as something to move towards, not something to move away. Um, you've counseled a lot of families over many years. Um, have you seen, anecdotally or in, in any other way, have you seen a difference between those um, folks who retire and thrive versus those folks who retire and maybe don't thrive quite as much? Yes, I see a difference. The ones that you know, are going to the senior centers, the ones that are taking courses, the ones who are actively engaged in their lives are doing a lot better than the ones that are you know, waiting around to die. And um, what I find is the, the most successful seniors are the proactive ones, both in finding activities that interested them and that they're passionate about, but also the ones that are proactive in having the conversations, talking about um, instead of denying the fact that the place where they're currently living might not be the place that they can age safely for the rest of their lives. And it really is much healthier for the family uh, to be in control, the individuals um, to be in control of when those things happen and how they happen, rather than being in a situation where it's an emergency and you can't go back to living in your home and your kids are just putting the dumpster out front and they're ready to get rid of everything. Better to be in control of it than have it done for you. I think that's great. We actually have a guest coming up in a, in a few weeks to talk about um, to downsize or not to downsize. That is the question. And we're going to talk a lot about what do you do with the, the home that maybe has been in the, gener in, in the family for, for decades, if not generations, and how do you handle that? So that's a, that's a great point. So um, we're running out of time. Um, every, every week or every, every show, we make sure that we have a, an extra credit assignment because our feeling is if, if uh, retirement's a graduation, then this is school. And you just helped educate all of us on various estate planning topics, um, and none of us want homework. But what is the takeaway? What is the one extra credit assignment that someone listening can say, okay, if I take this one nugget and I do this one thing, I will have uh, taken a step toward my own financial independence, my own successful retirement, and so forth? Well, my, my theme is don't wait until it's too late. 
um, you know, if, if you can do anything to be proactive, you know, get your financial ducks in a row, get your legal documents in a row, make sure that you're in an environment that's healthy and safe for you. Don't wait until it's too late because I've seen far too often when, when the problems arise with that because of the lack of planning. I think that's excellent advice and, uh, and starting, starting now is always better than starting later. So um, Jill, you've been a great guest. Tell, tell folks how they can reach you if they'd like to reach out to you either to, to have a conversation or, or to engage your services. Sure, I can be reached by telephone or by email. My phone number is 410-864-8788. And my email is jill at snyder, S-N-Y-D-E-R, hyphen law dot net. I also have a website that's snyder hyphen law dot net. Obviously, I can only counsel clients who are living in Maryland or have some kind of nexus to Maryland. I do advise everyone to get local counsel. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. This was wonderful. And I thank you for your expertise. Thanks for having me. Take care. From this day forward, let us make each decision with our best interests in mind. Let us begin visualizing our dreams and reaching our goals. It's time to take the next steps in our life journey and build our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website, don'tretiregraduate.com to download episodes and connect with us on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.